The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Relationships, and Global Discipleship Initiative hosted a track called Turning Your Church into a Disciple Making Mission. Greg Ogden facilitated this track for their team, and he has provided a quick one page summary of how their organization advises people to start what they call micro discipleship groups. They spell it all out in just one page, and that one-page PDF is available for download through discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. Now here's today's track session from Global Discipleship Initiative. What makes for a successful journey? Well, like just a couple of reflections on that, and especially out of what I saw happen at Camarillo Community Church. First of all, it's a combination of top-down, bottom-up. So uh, top-down, meaning the leadership structure of the church was committed uh, to the whole area of an intentional reproducing disciple-making groups. Every member of the staff, all the core elders of the church were involved in making this happen and committed to it. So from the top-down, that occurred. And then the groups were formed, of course, from the bottom up, organically from members of the church and those who were part of the congregation. And since the, the totality of the church leadership was engaged and then their groups were growing, organically one generation after another from 16 groups the first year to 35 groups the second year to 60 groups the third year uh, this buzz started within the congregation in terms of what was taking over the culture of the church so the when it doesn't work and one of the reasons why we don't have as many models for how this works is people are not one, committed at the staff level to focus on it so that everybody's doing the uh, same thing because if you want to define a culture of a church, you have to have a way of doing discipleship that is uniform without, throughout the congregation. Otherwise, if it's just kind of pick and choose the way you want to go, it's not going to have the impact in terms of shaping the congregation. So this, this top-down level. And then you have to have a sustained focus over time. Uh, and we get so easily distracted in terms of our focus. Um, I know one of the churches I work with locally, you know, that you have a new theme every year in terms of what the church is focused on. So this is the year of discipleship, and next year is the year of missions, and the next year is the year of spiritual formation, and the next year, and where's the focus? Uh, you lose the focus on the intentionality of making disciples is what we're about all the time. Uh, rather than just shifting from year to year. So that, that kind of mentality happens a lot, I think, in terms of that. But so Ralph was tenaciously focused uh, on what needed to occur. So in our last session here, we've got a lot of territory to cover and uh, want to try to uh, take, use your time well. So we start here. Uh, we've spent some time on the relational environment. We call this the microgroup, the, the car, the vehicle that you are making disciples in. And we've looked at uh, some of the key issues of what makes it relational. Uh, the, the focus on priority relationships, multiplication, transformation, and the environment that comes together here. Uh, this is where we're focused on the uh, first part of this session. We hope to get to this part, which is the, the curriculum, but the intentional leader. Um, I would say, if you want to focus on the kind of discipleship that we're talking about here, the most important leader in your church is the leader of a group of four. You want to support that grassroots person and develop your structure around supporting that leader and instilling in them and empowering them to do the job adequately. Uh, the most important leader is right at that grassroots level. I'm sure. So we'll talk some about how to how do we do that? How do we support and sustain that that role? The reproducible process is the curriculum, and uh, we'll take a, a look at that. But then we also want to cover what we call potholes and sinkholes. Uh, what are the the potholes that can disrupt your ministry? What are the or sinkholes that can disrupt your ministry, and and the, and the potholes that um, can kind of slow you down a bit? But let's uh, let's move into. This, these steps, um, where are we in the outline? We are on page, bottom page six, your outline. So you have one outline for all five sessions there. You can see how they're divided up, but uh, 
steps I'm going to take you through here are a part of a leader's guide that I have written uh, that I would be glad to send to you. And if, if with the response form that you have in front of you, if, when you fill that response form out, the information form, if you put down leader's guide and give me your email address, I'd be glad to send you that leader's guide. Uh, it's a 12-page guide that takes you to the steps of forming groups, um, the best way to use the time within the groups and different options that you have, have, have for that. So uh, I think you would find that very helpful in terms of a step-by-step -step process to make that work. But let's go over this uh, ourselves here. So step number one, praise for the Holy Spirit's discernment. What do I mean by that? So you're forming a group. What's the first thing you do? You pray and you ask the Lord, uh, who is it that you are putting on my heart that I should go and invite and join in this relationship? Uh, it's really important to have a settled conviction. Uh, so I like to take some time until I feel like God keeps putting on my heart certain individuals' names and, and, and then leads me to those people. Because when I approach them and want make the invitation to them, one of the things I want to say to them is, I've been praying about this, and your name keeps coming to, my, to me. I see some a heart for the Lord that, and your desire uh, to grow and develop, and I'm starting this new group. Um, you know, Would you consider the invitation to join me and a couple of others uh, to walk towards maturity in Christ together? We're going to assist each other in that process. But I want them to know it wasn't, I just didn't go through the church directory and close my eyes and point to a name. Um, it was somebody that I had really prayerfully considered. And sometimes it happens that the Holy Spirit speaks to you that contrary to all the evidence that you have about a person's life. Now, I had a man by the name of Bill, who's an estate planning attorney. Uh, in fact, my wife and I went to this Bill as a estate planning attorney. But he had not really shown a whole lot of evidence of spiritual interest uh, during the time that we were working with him to get our estate in order. His wife, Margie, uh, was a very committed believer. But Bill was kind of, uh, you know, a prisoner <laughs> when he came to church on Sunday morning. M Margie wanted him to come. You know, she, um, she's a pretty strong personality, so didn't want to run her up. Bill showed up and then headed for the golf course as soon as possible right after church on Sunday morning. But as I'm praying about it, Bill's name just keeps coming to me. I have no evidence that he would be a good candidate. But okay, I guess I better obey the prompting. So I call him up. Bill, can I come over and talk to you at your law office? Sure. He's a very affable guy. just fun to be with. And I came over and sat down with him. I said, uh, I'm starting this new group. Um, I'm, you know, the Lord seems to say to me that uh, I should ask you to be a part of this and uh, give, give my usual invitation as I do. And Bill says to me, you know, if you'd have come here six months ago and asked me that question, I would have said no to you right away. Somebody gave me, uh, whoever who was, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. I read it. And I was convinced of Jesus' resurrection. I'm in. <laughs> and he became a, a phenomenal evangelist himself. So it was like out of the blue. It was, so every, every once in a while, something like that kind of goes around the corner that uh, a little bit different. Here, here's what I want you to do. Who comes to your mind? If you were to write some names down of people that if you were to go back from this, and many of you have been a part of this, this group the last number of times, who is it that God is already impressing upon you? My guess is some of you have already started thinking about that. Um, so I want you to write those names down right now. Um, who is it that uh, you might want to go back and, and talk to? You don't have to just say that this is settled now, but I just want you to, uh, to consider that. Okay, um, one of the things that I built into Discipleship Essentials, is if you're using this as your basic discipleship curriculum, is a what I call a trigger point, an action page on page 184. Uh, as you're getting towards the end of this, this is the, uh, at least the official time to start thinking about who it is that you're going to be inviting to the next generation. So um, inviting others to join us, what are some of the characteristics that you might be looking for, and somebody that you would be inviting into this relationship. Talk about loyalty and teachability, a heart that's open. Uh, I don't think um, where somebody is in terms of their maturity of faith is all that important. Uh, in fact, I say to people, I'm willing to take anybody that's willing to commit themselves to the covenant and show up on a regular basis and do, and do the work. I don't care where they are, you know, in terms of their, their faith. If they're willing to put the time in and come, uh, that, that's, that's great. Uh, we'll have a, have a part of that. So, so we've, we've built that into the reproducible uh, part of that in, in the material. 
So that's the first step, is to pray. Second step is make a personal invitation. So I've modeled this in, in previous sessions uh, that we're uh, inviting somebody to join us on the journey of discipleship. You're looking somebody in the eye, you're going to them personally and making that invitation to come walk alongside me and a couple of others. And our whole goal is here to become more faithful to who Jesus is in our life, to become more and more conformed to his image and likeness, but also then to be equipped uh, it's a part of this process to disciple others as well. So that's a part of the upfront part of the invitation that we want them to consider from the get-go. Uh, if you're going to sort of have some possibility of reproduction, multiplication, and people taking the responsibility of discipling others, you want to make sure that that's part of the upfront agenda uh, that they're at least considering. You don't spring that on them two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way through. Oh, by the way, you're going to have to you know, lead your own group. So make that, that personal invitation and uh, be a part of that. Um, number three, shares what is involved. Uh, so you tell them uh, what this whole process is about. I, I sit down with them uh, with a book and uh, we look through the, the covenant that's here. We'll look at that in a second. Um, we kind of show them some sample lessons of what will be involved in this so that they can see what the, the content is, is about. Take a look at the table of contents and see the structure of it. We'll be going over that in, in a few moments in terms of what's in, in this particular book in, in, in itself. So uh, I, I want them to make an informed decision as to what they're committing themselves to. Um, and then I review the covenant with them. Um, that's on page 14 in this book. There's five elements uh, in terms of the basic covenant. I think, how many new ones do we have that have not been here before? Not too many. Well, some, some of you. Uh, so I'll just quickly go over the covenant that's here. We reviewed this in the, in the last session. But five elements here. Um, first of all, complete all assignments on a weekly basis prior to my discipleship appointment in order to be fully, in order to contribute fully. So this is not one of those Bible studies that you show up to and uh, make it up as you go once you, once you arrive. Uh, the idea of this discipleship is you complete the work ahead of time. Everybody there is fully prepared and ready to share their information, their answers, uh, their insights into scripture and their, uh, with everybody else. So we all, in a sense, become mutually teachers of one another based upon uh, the, the content that we're bringing from our own life. Secondly, meet weekly with my discipleship partners for approximately one and a half hours to dialogue over the content of the assignment. So we usually say rule of thumb, 90-minute sessions uh, are good to, for both covering the content as well as spending some time in terms of the relational side of things. So, yeah, first 30 minutes or thereabouts are kind of catch up on relational, how's it going, follow up on prayer requests, uh, checking in with each other. I oftentimes will have a... A, a question that I use at the beginning of a session. Um, questions like, uh, what makes it difficult for you to be here today? What's on your mind? Um, what's, what could be distracting for you at this time? So just to catch you know, some of the things that are a concern uh, on, on people's hearts. Um, where did God show up in your week? Have you, have you noticed God's presence in your, in your week this last week? Uh, get people to rummage through uh, some of their memory banks and uh, some God sightings, as one of my children's ministry directors used to say, with some of your God sightings as you've had. So just sharing some of those kinds of things in about another 90 minutes or so on the content. But the content is all designed to go right back to personal application in one's life. So it's not just moving from you know, heart to head. Uh, but it's from heart to head to heart. Uh, so in that, in that, kind, of, that kind of work. So, review the covenant. Oh, I didn't finish the covenant, did I? Um, so those are the first two items. It's on page six in our notes. Oh, yeah. That's right. I forgot that it was there. It's uh, there already. So, and if you're already on page six, uh, then you'll see that. Number three, offer myself fully uh, to the Lord with the uh, expectation, anticipation, that I'm entering a time of accelerated transformation uh, during this discipleship period. Sorry for the small nature of the, the letters there. Uh, we talked about the hothouse effect in the last uh, session, uh, that we see this as a, a time where the environmental elements come together in the context of a microgroup and they create the, the time of accelerated growth. So I want people to anticipate that. 
contribute to a climate of honesty, trust, and personal vulnerability uh, in a spirit of mutual upbuilding. So the idea of a small group is that we're going to get close. We're going to get into each other's lives uh, in a very intimate way. And this, frankly, is scary for some people. That's one of the reasons why some people say, no, uh, you're going to get too close to me. I don't think I want people crowding into to my life um, that closely. So sometimes you have to wait until people are ready. And then the last thing uh, is give serious consideration to contributing to a climate of uh, discipling chain by committing myself to invest in at least two others following the completion of discipleship essentials. So uh, as we noted in previous session, give serious consideration is stated in that way because if you haven't experienced something, it's hard to commit yourself to something. But from the get-go, we want people to know this is what we're anticipating. You will be carrying on the discipling chain and you'll be equipped during this process to do that. And uh, so from the beginning, uh, commit yourself and consider that. So we've already talked about the, the importance of a covenant. Uh, why have a covenant? Why have a commitment like this? Why gather around some common expectations? What is a covenant? It's a, it's a commitment that states the expectation and mutual agreements in the relationship. And so everybody's on the same page. You're all agreed to the same, same thing. And when somebody starts faltering on that covenant, uh, that gives power, in a sense, to the leader to follow up. Uh, it, you've already committed to certain things, and oh, you're showing up and not completing your work. Well, let me, talk, let me talk to you about that. What's going on? Why is that happening? The things are difficult in your life now that makes that make that. Um, so it gives permission to, to the leader to, to follow through on things. Um, ask to prayerfully consider the invitation. So usually I say to somebody, um, I don't want your answer right now. I'm giving you the invitation, but I want you to pray about it over the next week. Uh, I want you to take a look at your schedule. Uh, can you add another three-hour commitment to your schedule and your life? Uh, if you're to do this, is there something you might have to drop out of your schedule uh, to make this an important centerpiece uh, of your life? Well, you've got work to do to get there, right? So you've got some homework to do, and you've got the time uh, for, for the group. So the combination of the, the preparatory work, yeah, and, and yeah, that makes sense. No, that wasn't. No, there's not, not any separate, uh, at least intended individual meetings. Sometimes that occurs, but uh, for other reasons. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, uh, ask to prayerfully consider. And then get back to me. Let me know what your decision is uh, for that. So in, in, a, in a week or so. Uh, set the first regular meeting. Uh, one of the nice things about a small group is that you usually can find some seam in the schedule for everybody to fit. I just say set your first regular meeting. That not be, might not be your final time. Uh, but at least get together for the first time. And one of the things on that agenda for the first time is what time works for all of us in terms of when we can when we can meet. So for some, it may if you've got a full work schedule, um, you know sometimes the time before work is the only time you have. You know, so I've had a lot of my groups meet before everybody heads off to work. Uh, so six six thirty in the morning uh, before uh, the workday starts. But uh, find that that seam. So my latest group. It looks like we're meeting at Starbucks at 11:30 on Tuesday. Uh, so everybody has a lunch hour available. Then all three, all, all the other three are employed besides myself, and uh, so they can fit that into that that schedule. And they have enough flexible time at lunch that they can can do that. So that that works out well. Guides through guides through the first three lessons. Um, so I, I usually try to kind of set some kind of model as to what you know, the way to do things. We've discussed kind of the pattern uh, that we can have here. But the material is laid out is if you just want to walk through the content uh, without you know, a whole lot of creativity, you can just do that. You know, So it's, there are four parts to a lesson, core truth, memory verse, uh, inductive Bible study guide, and then fourthly, a reading. And they all have inductive questions to go with them, and you can just go through the questions. Uh, so what does the leader do? Well, what's your answer to question number two? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't require a whole lot of structure. And sometimes if you've gone ahead and answered other questions, you can skip around uh, in terms of content. But uh, the nice thing is people have come prepared, ready to share what they have, have to, to, um, to tell each other uh, at that point. So. Um, 
And then, uh, fairly early on, we share the leadership. So I tell people right from the beginning, I'll start, um, but we're going to rotate leadership. And what I usually like to do is then, within four to six weeks, uh, each person starts, I say, take a lesson. You, get, you guide us through the entire lesson, and then we'll pass it on to the next person, pass it on to the next person. So what would be the value of that in terms of sharing leadership? We're going to have to do it. So, yeah, exactly. So. Uh, so they're, it's, it's reproducible, they're in, in a leadership position, and they find out that, oh, I can do this. It's not you know, that difficult, not that rocket science kind of thing. The nice thing about a, the size of group is it requires far less training in terms of group dynamics than a group of 10 or 12 would be. We oftentimes feel like we need to train leaders if they're going to lead a group of 10 or 12. Why? Because the complexity goes up considerably. Uh, you, within a group of 10 or 12, sheer group, group dynamics says uh, there's going to be about four people in a group of 12 that actually talk. <laughs> the rest are going to be fairly quiet. So how do you draw in the rest of the group? Uh, there's going to be someone in that group that's going to dominate the group. So how does a leader know how to help the group uh, incorporate that person back in gracefully without how, how allowing them to dominate? So you need this, this extra. Right? When you have a group of three or four, you're having a conversation. Uh, it's very rare that you have somebody that dominates in that setting. Um, yeah, there's, there are times when people think they, they are the theological brains in the group and uh, need to impress you with how much they know. Uh, but uh, that, they usually think the sheer size of the group, group dynamics takes that away you know, in terms of that, that, that issue. So you're sharing leadership, you're getting them prepared to lead their own groups. They can find that they do it. And you do that as early on as you feel like, 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 as, like you can as, as possible. Um, you model transparency, uh, you, sh you share. I, the way I usually start my groups, uh, I will spend the first month or so on a highly end, the relational end of things, far less on content uh, and getting into the material. So the, the first um, time together, for example, just this Tuesday, um, I asked them to share, okay, where did you grow up? What was your home life like? Uh, when you were, you know, elementary school or teenager, what was what was that like, faith-wise or just in general? Where where were, are you in the birth order? And if we're if we're all married, um, I say, well, uh, tell us how, you, how tell us how you met your spouse, uh, and what's kind of one funny story that occurred during your time of engagement leading up to marriage. Uh, the value of laughing together initially that overcomes anxiety is really important. I really try to f have people tell stories that, you know, make them either look silly or look at their relationship silly. Or, and uh, so that really is very helpful. And then the next thing I do is I say, we're all going to share our faith journey. So we were each going to take a one, we'll do one procession for the next four weeks, and I'm going to ask you to to you know, tell some us things about your faith journey. Um, how did you come to Christ? If you have, uh, what's been the time when you've been the furthest away from God? What's been the time when you've been closest to God uh, in your life? Who in your life has really had a big influence over you in terms of shaping your understanding of what the Christian life is all about? Tell your story. We want, we want to try to see each other's life in the context of the story. And that brings us usually up to the present, which is, um, okay, why did you join this group? Why did you want to have this group be a part of your life uh, at, at this point? Uh, so to get some of that background, I, I loaded heavily relationally up, up front. Uh, so to create that kind of environment of, of openness as a part of our, our time together. Yeah. No. No, we're getting into the lessons, but I, I feature because I want someone to take their, uh, a good chunk of time to tell their story in, in an unhurried fashion. So we just do one person a week for the for, for four weeks, and then we get into into context of the, the lesson as well. But that it may maybe less time than we usually would have for, for a lesson, because oftentimes these stories go a lot longer than uh, we had anticipated, and it depends how old you are too. You know, my story's long, <laughs> so it takes a while. Um, 
So uh, this, new, this new group I have, we have a couple guys that are in their early 30s, so their story's not quite as long. Um, so, but model transparency. Uh, if you want people to, to go deep, you have to begin sharing some of your own story yourself. Uh, as a part of my faith journey story, I will talk about uh, a theme that had run through my own Christian life that uh, was a detriment to my, my Christian life, which was uh, deep feelings of fear and anxiety and the need to be healed from those and how that came to a head in my life and where I came to the point where I could not handle my own fears and anxiety in my life. And I had to finally go to some people and say, help me, you know, it would be like, you know, being an alcoholic. I'm powerless over uh, these fear, feelings of fear and anxiety and the need for, for healing and going to... Uh, some uh, a couple people that I knew had a prayer ministry of inner healing and helping me come to terms with some of those those things in my life. Um, that's part of my history, part of my story. Um, and then there's obviously more current things as well. But to, to, I want people to to know about that and uh, see that that was a very real part of of my life. And then finally, uh, holds up the value of multiplication. Um, so let's let's go let's kind of circle back to this because uh, this we have come back to this a number of times in terms of uh, the the desire for people to assume responsibility for the next generation of the disciple making and uh, the holding up that value. So let me just have a group discussion here. What would be some of the ways that we could reinforce the value of multiplication so that that is kept before us? Um, as has been said, there's a lot of uh, inertia that can set in with these groups because once you become close to each other, people don't want to break up. Uh, these, you know, these groups have a shelf life of a year to a year and a half. Uh, you're building in the mentality from the get-go that's uh, as close as we're going to get. Uh, this group is probably not going to carry on in terms of the weekly meetings. We may we will have a special relationship with each other no matter what, no how long. But we are trying to balance community with outreach. Uh, and that's always the tension, I think, within, within the Christian church. So when you find community, you want to hold on to it. You don't want to let it go. You want to stay together. It's, it's comfortable uh, in, in terms of that space. And maybe it's the first time in your life you've ever had a group of people like this. Uh, and now you're asking me to what? <laughs> uh, break off from this group and go start my own group? Um, so how do we uphold that value when you've got the inertia, the draw of this pullback to community? Any thoughts? Yeah. yeah. Well, here's sort of a, a, an illustration of celebrating uh, what we're trying to reinforce. Can you see that? <laughs> Those are some of the guys that have been in Ralph's uh, group that they got their batons uh, and getting ready to go off and start their own groups. Share uh, the story. Huh? Share the story. Sure. <laughs> you share the story. No, you share the story. <laughs> now, one of the things we oftentimes, this is, this is usually our closer. So maybe we'll send them off after this, right? So, But you know, I oftentimes tell the story of uh, 1980 Olympic Games in Seoul, Korea. And uh, the whole, uh, you know, one of the featured events in that Olympic Games was the 4x100 relay Americans men's team. And when it came to that day, there was all this anticipation and excitement in the stadium because the American team was by far the these you know tops of the field, and there was no question who was going to win the race. It was just whether they were going to break the world record or not. So the stadium was all full of excitement at that moment when this the gun goes off and the American team bursts out in front, and you know within the first runner of the four runners way way ahead in the cheer, the crowds are cheering and, and, and what's taking place there. They're looking at the rec world record clock on the field and they're ahead of the world record and it's, it's getting louder and louder. The pass goes from the first to the second runner, increases the distance between that second runner and the rest of the field, finally comes to the third runner, passes the baton, and by now it's the race is over. I mean, it's like, okay, they're so far on advance, they could kind of walk the rest of the way into, into the, the field and the crowd's getting louder and louder, seeing the world record is going to be broken and the pass goes to the, from the third runner to the fourth runner and it's obvious that something difficult is taking place there. There's some fumbling going on in terms of the pass, and all of a sudden the baton is dropped. And the air goes out of the crowd. <laughs> and the American team is disqualified. So the message is what? 
don't drop the baton. <laughs> Carry it on and keep it going. So, all right, Ralph, it's your turn. Uh, I don't know, do, do, do what? But, yeah. So, yeah. Once you once you begin to build up a uh, a culture in your church, all of a sudden we we have these baton ceremonies in front of the congregation, and we're gonna we're gonna invite. We have these um, brochures about our intensives that are coming up. We have an intensive in Bellingham and an intensive down in, in Camarillo in Southern California at the church where I was then. And they've given away 267 batons. So you multiply that by four, you see how many people have been in discipleship groups and what's going on there. And it takes over the culture of the church. So by that time, there's an incentive already there. This is what it's all about. We go to the church with the batons. You know? <laughs> you know? I mean, and they understand that that's who we are. We're disciple makers. Yeah. That's, what, that's what we do. And if you look at the life of Jesus, what did he do? 90% yeah. of his time, he's making disciples. Yeah. And always walking away from the crowds and making disciples, which is phenomenal because we don't do that in this country. Yeah. You know, I'm a pastor, and when 4,000 people come to hear me speak, you know, I don't go to 12. You know, I stick with the, you know, I, we start a building program. You know, you, we're going to take advantage of this. You got all these people. Jesus never did that. Yeah. He kept focusing on the 12. Now, I might mention that obviously Ralph is not there as pastor. There is a new pastor at Camarillo Community Church, and the the big question is: Will this will that pastor carry on the cultural values that have been established? Well, uh, David Hurtado is the new pastor there. He's a part of one of the microgroups. It was a new experience for him, and he recently wrote, and I think on a newsletter, and it said, "I can't wait to get my baton." <laughs> so it's wonderful to have that culture of that church fold that pastor into that culture, even though that had not been a part of his background and experience um, there. So he's catching that. My, my wife loves to have the girls come ask her. You know, she's just, I'm aggressive. I go out and I find my guys. My, my wife doesn't do that. You know, she waits till they come to her. I don't know why, but, she, but they always come to her. You know, the senior, past, the senior pastor's wife at the church where we are now, 2,500 member church, she comes and says, would you disciple me? So she, they find her, they do that, they find, they find the ones that are ready and they do, and yeah, it's okay to ask to be in. Okay. They, they came to Jesus and asked to be in, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Well, I've just heard. Some of them were ready, but they another, asked. Yeah, another thing is, yeah, that they, they may not be ready. Yeah, and you vet that. To do it. Yeah. You, you find out. Or I may not be as sure. That yeah, you set the standards, and, and they, they may not. They may walk away, but <coughs> but okay. many will stay. Yes. Program is very successful, and you've had a lot of people go through discipleship groups. Yeah. At what point uh, there's sort of a sentiment we've sort of fished out the pond. Uh, at what point do you bring outsiders uh, who are... You, you don't even have to ask them to do that. They go to work and they start talking to a buddy at work and and, and, and the buddy says, and they came to me, that's the first time it happened, the guy comes to me and says, I got a guy at work who wants to be in my group, can I let him in? I said, well, if you think he should be in, invite him in. And he's he goes to the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church downtown, but you know, okay, let him in. Then I get a call from the Good Shepherd Lutheran pastor, <laughs> Jim Larson. He says, uh, I heard you got one of my guys in your group. Could you come over and teach us how to do those groups? And we went over and taught them. And it started spreading churches all over town. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm waiting for that problem to occur. <laughs> Yeah. How many of us have that problem right now? <laughs> well, and then you, and then your people. Uh, no, I, I'm, not, I'm being facetious, but uh, you know, it would be And then nice your people are standing in the lobby waiting for the new guy to, to 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 come in, so they can get them in their groups, kind of thing. So yeah, it's it's fun to watch it happen, and um, people will find God will bring them. They're ready. You know, it's it's like I think. He used to tell the young pastors, he says, I got a message to preach, or I, I want to preach. And he says, Well, you find a message, God will find you a place to preach it. <laughs> uh, if you're ready to disciple, uh, God will bring those people to you someday. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, we are keeping my eye on the clock. Going to shift gears here to the this third element here on the part of the equation to make a successful journey the reproducible process, and which we equate with. Uh, a curriculum, uh, the tracks, the GPS uh, that guides the process. So uh, we don't have a teacher in the group, 
but the curriculum in a sense serves as the teacher uh, in which to, to guide through the process. So I'm just going to have us talk a little bit about this uh, because I want Ralph to be able to talk about the, the sinkholes and potholes uh, that can uh, undermine our ministry here. So. So whether it's discipleship essentials or some other tool, uh, why might a foundational universal curriculum be of value for a ministry? If you think of a discipleship tool as something that you would like to lay as the foundation across a congregation and have as a common experience that people have gone through, what do you think could be the benefit of that? What could be the, what could you see the, to be the value of that? Talking some similar language, maybe you know, some have concepts that in common, and so you're sharing that with each other. That would be the big one, I think. You know, sort of that. the next generation, because maybe you've got a certain strength, and so you're discipling and leading out of that strength. And then I feel like I have to be you instead of transferring the curriculum. Uh -huh. to the next, and I'm not you. I don't have yeah, the right. same strength. And yeah. So I feel like I've got to be you instead of okay, I can take this and hand it to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. So the, the we're going to talk about the value of a tool to be able to empower the discipler to carry on. Mm -hmm. So the, having a tool that somebody has at least gone through and feels comfortable with, uh, you know, what happens if you don't have? And that's my next question. What are the consequences if you do not have a foundational curriculum or foundational tool? You'll be all over the place. What's that? You'll be all over the place. Mm -hmm. Be all over. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, and. <laughs> Most churches probably are are having multiple types of curriculum that you're using, maybe at that level, uh, that are not across the board the same. Uh, so that that's part of it. So you could be, you know, very scattered, you know, in terms of that approach thing. Okay, let me um, mention a few things here. It's, uh, these are on your outline already. So I think we're on page seven, and then we're I think we'll kick it over fairly soon here to, to Ralph for the last part. But So what happens if you don't have a curriculum? My first thing is, if you don't have a curriculum, you don't have a plan. And that's probably the bottom line. <laughs> uh, what's, your, what's your discipleship plan? Where are you trying to take people? Uh, what's the, the picture of what you're trying to accomplish in your life? The image that comes to my mind is that most believers have picked up bits and pieces uh, kind of a hodgepodge of disconnected truths. Mm -hmm. So my image here is you've got a shoebox, and uh, you go to a sermon, and ah, great preaching this morning, good job. Uh, that I got, that's truth is going to stick with me. Uh, I stick that piece of the puzzle in that shoebox. Um, ran a little devotional thought today. Gosh, that was really meaningful. Let's throw that piece in the shoebox. Um, Gosh, I went to a Bible study and somebody else said something about a passage of scripture that that was me. Throw that in the shoebox. What do you have? You've got a bunch of disconnected pieces of puzzle <laughs> that have never been adequately put together in a big picture. And with a curriculum, hopefully a decent one, like Disciples of Essentials or some other, it takes that bigger picture and puts it together so that you have some co cohesive picture of what the Christian life is all about. We'll take a look at what that, what that is here in a moment. Well, I, I did one discipleship group uh, with two women, myself and two women. The reason for that was to get the whole thing started with the women in, in our church and give them some kind of picture of how, to, how that worked. After I was done, a woman who was about 10 years my senior came to me and she said, um, Greg, I, honestly, I didn't think I was going to get a whole lot out of this process. I mean, I grew up in a pastor's home. The Bible has been a part of my life all my life. And then I realized... You know, in terms of what we did together, that it created a holistic understanding of what the Christian life was all about. And she used the image of a mosaic. She said, I realized I had a lot of missing tiles in my mosaic. And this really filled in the missing tiles so that I could see much better uh, the big picture of what the Christian life was all about. So uh, I think with that, you have a, a, a good curriculum to provide a plan. Uh, without a curriculum, you will not be intentional. So the, what's, uh, how do we define discipling? Discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside others in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love to grow towards maturity in Christ. This includes equipping the disciple to teach others as well. So uh, intentional, purposeful, covenantal. Uh, so you're going somewhere uh, with that. So it's uh, as opposed to haphazard and random, uh, this is something that keeps you on track. So uh, without a tracks to run on, uh, small groups can easily kind of devolve into what? 
uh, chatting about the weather, the latest things going on, what's happening in your life. Uh, you don't have really a, a, a sense of direction of what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. This next one is probably one of the most important ones. Without a curriculum, you will not have a transferable tool that empowers future disciples to disciple others. So most of us will need some kind of tool to use. Uh, what am I going to use with somebody? Uh, uh, I offered the challenge earlier in one of our sessions. I said if somebody approached you on a Sunday morning uh, with uh, Joe in, in, tow, in tow, and Joe has just become a Christian, and uh, would you take Joe for the next year, please, and uh, lead him uh, into a deeper relationship with Christ? And, oh, by the way, would you equip him to disciple others as well? Now, what would most responses be in most of our congregations? What do I do? Yeah. How do I do that? Well, at least with a tool, you have some uh, structure to do that. What's your story about that, Ralph? Do you have a story that's connected to somebody approaching you, and uh, at one point in time, you didn't know what to do? Yeah, I was. I had been pastoring the church for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, and I had a young engineer graduated from the University of Colorado, uh, came down to Point Magoo, uh, Navy base nearest, to work for the government, building rockets. And he came to me and said, hey, can you disciple me? And I was stunned. I knew that's what I should be able to do, but I did not know. I didn't have a plan. I had no tool. I didn't know what to tell him. I, I don't even know what I said. I was so stunned and shocked. I, I don't even remember what I said. Um, later, when we had our discipleship groups going in, he got in one and he got discipled. But uh, at that point, I was shocked that I did not know how to answer that question. I didn't know how to respond to that. Okay, I could have come up with something to mentor him, but really to, to intentionally disciple him, um, I had no process. In your experience, or is that the, the case for most pastors? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to, uh, and sometimes I still do it, I'll go in front of pastors and be talking about this. And I'll say, what was Jesus' last command? Everybody knows it. They quote it, you know, going to all the world makes stuff. You know. um, can you name Jesus' disciples? Well, between the group, they'll name a bunch of them, and I'll say, name yours. <laughs> and there's this awkward silence. <laughs> yes, see that hand? <laughs> you're, in a, you're in another country? In Dominican Republic. You're in the Dominican Republic. It doesn't yeah, make any difference whether you're in the Dominican oh. Republic or here. <laughs> so it sounds an awful lot like Because I want to submit yes. to... How do you help them get Convince it? Convince a fully grown man. Well, and, and, and because we are trained. <laughs> How do you tell them anything? Yeah. My wife wants to know that answer. Yeah. That's the best way on that. Your next comment could be a lot. No, that, that, that's huge. That is huge because most pastors no, this I know. Is the, this is where you're a coach and you ask the, uh, the question to the group. Uh, okay, that's good. That's good. That's good. What would you say to her question? How do you how do you how do you convince a pastor who isn't sold yet? Uh, how do you convince them that this is something they ought to ought to be doing? Makes me better tell you. I would say start. That's what I'm saying. Ooh, start and see? then you have fruit. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. Start, and when you have fruit, you know, if they don't hear you, usually they won't shut you down. They won't say, you can't make disciples here. You know, that nobody's going to. Every pastor believes in discipleship. Well, part of your culture in that situation, I assume, is more of a male-dominated culture as well, right? Um, now it's getting more... There okay. are women pastors. Okay. In the okay. Oh, okay. Very good. Well, it's his this fault, not yours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not theirs. Yeah. Well, and, well, and but your this this suggestion here is you if you get into a situation where a pastor is not on board and doesn't buy in right away, uh, ask him if it's okay if I start a group. It's okay if I start a discipleship group. They're, they're, I I can't imagine one telling you no. Uh, I asked that of the senior pastor of the church where I, I uh, retired and went to and told him what I was doing and said I wanted to start a group. He said, yeah, but I want to be in the first one. And he joined my group. And now he has a group and the whole church. And he, and he asked me just a couple of weeks ago, now have all the staff gone through yet? And we got a huge staff. Have all the staff gone through groups yet? I said, well, not quite all of them. Have and you, all you said back to him, why don't you find out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's why what you, you said, right, Rob? Yeah. Why don't you tell them that's important? Yeah. Uh, I just had one other thing. Sure. If that guy came to you, will you please disciple me? 
Yeah. I'm shocked that he knew to ask for that. Where did he get this from? Why in yeah. the world would he think I knew how? <laughs> yeah. I mean, or that he needed it. Yeah, right. That's right. so much. Right. It was. It was. Yeah. And he was he was a sterling young man, and um, he knew more about it than I did. Yes. Okay. And I, I was on Campus Crusade staff for 14 years, and this happened after that. So I did. I had been involved in discipleship, but where our, our program was so scattered, and it was so you know that by this time I had forgotten how to do it. I, we weren't doing it, and I and I hadn't been consistently doing it, and so I, I didn't know what to do with it. Right, right. right. I, I just, there's something wickedly wrong about you. When you, have, when, you, when you have to spend 20 hours a week prepping a, a message for the weekend yeah. that people aren't going to remember past Tuesday, uh, what, are, what, are we, what are we doing? Where are we, the most potent, the highest potential disciple maker in your congregation is probably the senior pastor, right? He's trained, he's got all the set, and yet he's not doing discipleship. What is what's what's broken here? Something's something's bad, uh, and what basically what we're trying to correct? Yeah, we're trying to teach pastors how to do it in a competent way, and that they can teach their congregation. And without a doubt, the senior pastor's load will get lighter. It will get lighter as they start building disciples and disciple makers. They're going to start doing his job. They're going to get so excited about what they're doing. They're, they're going to be doing his job. Yeah, I mean, changing the, the, the system of rewards that you're talking about here, because as you say, the, it tells us about what it gets rewarded in terms of pastoral ministry, and we all know what those things are, you know, building budgets and butts, right? And so those things, uh, buildings. Yeah. The, the first book that I wrote called Unfinished Business, Returning the Ministry of the People of God, was all about describing uh, the dependency model ministry that's in place in most of our churches and how to shift to the equipping model ministry. But So that's what that book was intended to try to help with um, because it's a whole retraining of expectations. Because um, we have built-in expectations from the congregation to what the pastor is supposed to be. And the pastors absorb those expectations because we want to be looked upon favorably. Uh, we all, all of us want to be popular and, and be told that we're a wonderful pastor. And a lot of that's around the whole issue of caregiving in a congregation and adequate administration. Of course, then you're rewarded for you know effective public speaking as well. So that's all those things conspire, as you say, wickedly uh, to keep the very system in place. And then our seminaries conspire with that as well, teaching that, that same model of ministry uh, over and over again. So, um, yeah, we have to have, that's where you have, you have to have paradigm busters uh, that are willing to pay the price um, to, to change the models of ministry. And it's an expensive price at times. There's no question about it. Ultimately, it's, it's a lid on the process. Yeah, it's, uh, unless the senior leadership uh, is willing to participate and even lead that process, as, as Ralph was, uh, there's only a certain amount that can be accomplished. Yeah, there's certain eddies and some effective discipling that can occur, but it will not become a part of the lifestyle of the congregation unless the senior leadership is on board, I think, ultimately. Jesus yeah. did not delegate discipleship. He didn't give it to a sub-staff member. <laughs> he didn't give it to a layman. Uh, he did it. He did discipleship. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, especially around the issue of a transferable tool and why we suggest a curriculum for that. Um, it, unless you have a simple Bible study method that's easily transferable, uh, it's very difficult to use the scripture simply as the disciple-making material. So there are, there are systems uh, such as Discovery Bible Study that has a set of questions that can be used for any passage of Scripture that can be asked for any passage of Scripture that anybody can do. And so you can take sections of Scripture, certainly, or whole books and, and go through it as a part of the discipleship process. And uh, sure, you can kind of lay out, kind of if you were to select you know, some key books of the Bible that you think would adequately cover some of the foundations and basics, you could use the Discover Bible Study method and do it in, in that fashion. But you have to have something that is simple and reproducible. If it requires, you know, theological exegesis <laughs> uh, or exegetical work from a passage of Scripture that the average layperson can do, the value of this transferable tool is that it makes it available for the average person to, to accomplish. And so if you're in new Bible study, you have to figure out a method that the average person uh, can, tr can transfer in that fashion in a relational way.
in relational context. Okay, um, let's move on here to a couple more things. Um, if you don't have a, a, a curriculum, you don't, will not have a sense of progress. Uh, so what's the progression that you are, are working through? Uh, I know when I was initially uh, without a curriculum and doing especially one-on-one -on -one discipling, uh, I felt like I was kind of making it up as I went. Now, I would be meeting with somebody and I thought, okay, we need to do something on basic theology. Well, let's use John Stott's book, Basic Christianity, and we'll, we'll study that together. That would be a kind of a good in introductory material. Well, let's see. Gosh, we better work, focus on quiet time and devotional life. Well, what can I find for that? You know, gathering that together and throw that in there. Well, gosh, we need to apply our... our discipleship to the family. Um, so what's, what are our roles as husbands and fathers and you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it was felt like I was just cobbling together things. And with that cobbling together, it's like, where are we going with this? Uh, it was just bouncing around from one thing to another. I think you made that, that comment earlier. Uh, that's uh, you know, from that. But so one of the certainly motivations of putting together a curriculum was to have sort of a, a plan uh, that covered the o overview of the Christian life that gave a sense of progress as we were moving through, at least curricular in terms of content and topics um, that obviously then touched upon person's uh, own transformation as well. And then finally, uh, if you don't have a curriculum, you will not have a structure uh, to define your time together. So the whole idea of uh, as you are kind of sharing life and ministering to each other, you need the tracks to come back to, to run on and make sure you have a, a, a structure. So you may diverge off, as, as Ralph talked about Ed's story in the previous session, where a marriage that was falling apart, you need to spend the time uh, focusing on that for a number of sessions, even though you've set the curriculum apart. You had the tracks to run on to come back together to provide the structure uh, for, that, for that focus. So, um, uh, just uh, turn in your notes, to, if you would, to page eight. Uh, it, it's the overview of discipleship essentials that you see there. I'm just going to give you a very quick uh, overview of, of things, so you can see it uh, there on, on the page. Um, my basic text is uh, transforming discipleship. So that describes a lot of the stuff we've been covering in this in this seminar. So if you want to go back and review some of that content, this is the book uh, to go. It, it talks about the need for disciple making in the church today. It looks at Jesus and Paul's manner and uh, uh, process of making disciples. And that's chapters 3 through 5. And then chapters 6 through 10 is how do we implement Jesus and Paul's manner of making disciples in the church and looking at a lot of these things that we've done. So in terms of uh, and then there's this little book. Uh, that's my on-ramp to Discipleship Essentials, uh, to the disciple-making process. It's only eight lessons. It's much thinner, uh, much less uh, daunting uh, for people. And it answers the question, if I want to be a disciple, what's expected of me? So it's kind of, a, in a sense, a pre-qualifier uh, to get people involved in that process. So, all right. So the first section of the book uh, is growing up in Christ. You see that as your outline, part one. Starts with two lessons on what is disciple, discipling and who is a disciple. And then lessons three through six answer the question, how do we stay connected to Christ? And this is a section on some spiritual disciplines introduced early on in, in the material. So quiet time, Bible study, prayer, and worship uh, are the th three introdu four introductory disciplines that we look at uh, in our faith. So how do you stay connected to Christ? How do you stay rooted in Christ? What's the, what's, what's a spiritual discipline? Uh, it's a practice that simply keeps you in the presence of God uh, to, so that God can show up uh, and actually speak to you. So. They're not magical in the sense that uh, just because you do a discipline or have a habit of doing something that God is required to show up, uh, or it's not something you check off as, as, a, as a law that you have to fulfill. These are things that put you into the presence of God so you can focus. The second section of the book, The Message of Christ, uh, is the theological section, the core doctrine of our faith. Uh, in this section, it answers the question, what has Christ done for us? It's organized in a Trinitarian fashion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit flow. So it starts with the nature of the three-person God and what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God. 
this chapter 9 is on sin, broken image of relationship with God. But God hasn't let us go in grace. He's chased us down and you know, come to us. Uh, the prodigal son story is a part of that chapter. What did Christ accomplish on the cross? Uh, who was Jesus? What did he accomplish? This is chapter 11 on redemption. And then what are the, some of the results and the benefits of Christ's redemptive work, justification, and adoption? My favorite chapter in the book is on adoption. What does it mean to be the beloved child of God, be adopted into his family? That was a very meaningful discovery for me that addressed the fear and anxiety in my life in terms of who am I in Christ. Mm -hmm. Third section is about what does Christ want to do in us? So if the second section is what does Christ want to do for us, the third is what's the transformation from within? Mm -hmm. So that's where we complete the emphasis on the Holy Spirit uh, in that particular section. So being filled with the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, trust, love, justice. Justice is a, uh, a, a chapter on what is God's heart for the poor? What is biblical justice? Uh, so the whole idea that mercy uh, for the marginalized is at the center of God's heart. That's discipleship material is not oftentimes in discipleship books. Uh, and then witness, uh, how do we tell our story in terms of how we share our faith with others. And then finally, what does Christ want to do through us serving Christ in the last section? So a lesson on the church as the body of Christ, the basic image of the church is we all have parts in the body. That's what ministry gifts is about in chapter 21. So we each have a part to play. One of my favorite exercises in the books is in this point uh, because then we are affirming each other's gifts. We spend some time saying, this is what I've seen in you. This is what I've seen in you. This is what I've seen, seen in you in terms of the gifts that God has given you. Thank you for using those gifts to minister to me uh, in our life. And so everybody walks out of there that day like fl floating. Um, and lesson 22 is on spiritual warfare, uh, 23 on obedience, and then finally the last lesson of the original book was sharing the wealth. Uh, it's not just about keeping it to yourself and, and saying, gosh, wasn't that wonderful? Uh, what's next? Uh, no, I'm going to pass this on uh, to somebody else. And then when the book was redone in 2007, I added another chapter uh, on money. The, the university said, what's something you want to add that wasn't there? And I said, stewardship um, needs to be a part of that. So. I think money is a pretty clear indicator of where our heart is. I think Jesus said something about that. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to throw, throw it here to Ralph, uh, and uh, we're going to look at potholes and sinkholes. When we <clears throat> were seeing this process come together in our church, uh, we encountered various issues at time to time and we had to come up with solutions and you probably will come up with this, your own solutions to these things but I'll share with you some of the ones that we ran into and some of the things now you you know what a you know what a sinkhole is right yeah. And that's where the whole, you know, in, in Florida, that's where the highway goes, you know, disappears overnight and some trucks in it in the morning in this hole. Or somebody's house disappears. I mean, some really, really drastic ones happen. But that's one, those are ones that'll, they'll destroy your ministry, is, is, are the sinkholes. And um, those, those may come. Those may come. I have a, a former staff member that was sent down to um, Indonesia. Uh, for and, uh, on mission, I mean that's where he took his family for mission, and he came back to the United States some years later, and they had developed in, uh, some incredible um, ministry over there with house churches, small churches that were just growing like crazy and multiplying, and uh, using uh, similar kinds of principles that we use, and. But he was over here, and while he's over here, he gets a phone call from his network down there, and somebody has started teaching, uh, a teaching going down the network that Jesus is not God, you know, undermining the, the deity of Christ. And Todd had to get on an airplane and go back <laughs> to correct this thing before it got too far down, because those networks that they built up are, they're, they're almost unnamed because of the, the uh, resistance in, in Indonesia and, and being a Hindu, uh, a Muslim country. Uh, they don't even know the names of the guys in the next group. So the multiplying groups are, are just, they just go down. And this was going down the line and he, he had to get over and stop it. Well, you may find that there's some theological error that somehow is gotten in there and this is something this is a sinkhole this can you can wipe out you know whole leg of ministry or something you want to correct those things uh, when they happen um, process de degeneration um, 
something happens and the process is breaking down, and it can occur from, from a number of reasons that the process would. Many times it's because uh, somebody has uh, ill-equipped a leader, and, uh, and the leaders, like produces like. And if they're not if they, if if they're not if they're not focused correctly, then it could be passing down the line, and the process degenerates, and eventually the groups stop multiplying uh, in that in that particular arm of the ministry. So uh, that needs to be corrected. Reproduce, reproduction failure, and I t we talked about the reproduction riddle in the last hour, but uh, reproduction failure. We saw our reproduction in our third year dropping down from 80% where it started down to about 60%, and we said, okay, what's wrong? What are we, what are we missing here? And we s saw part of it was the fact that when we first started, we were targeting the core of our church, you know, people who were already involved and already sold out to Jesus and that kind of thing, and we were now inviting people who were more fringy, and so we had to recognize that, okay, these people need more time, so we have to slow down the process so that they have time to assimilate and grow, and we began to do that, and that helped. We also found out in, in the um, reproduction failure that some, some people weren't, uh, it wasn't being emphasized in the group, although it's there in the, in the curriculum and in the material that Greg puts put together for us, it wasn't being emphasized that the ultimate objective is you become a disciple maker. You're not just here to learn this stuff. You've got to, you want to be able to pass it on. And that had to be emphasized. Yes? Well, our, our original four that started the discipleship groups in, in, in our church, uh, we continued to get together. We, we formed a team. We were the leadership team of the discipleship um, uh, ministry of our church. And we met together weekly. And we were, co we were constantly watching and seeing how it was going because we were learning and we knew we, we didn't know what we we're doing <laughs> we were just learning as we were going and and trying to figure out and when we'd run into a problem we'd just sit there in that group and pray about it and try to solve it and try to find an answer to it but um so you, you also tracked regularly the, the groups that were forming so they they kept a list yeah, of we, all the groups and yeah. who was in those groups and and where they were in the process and so there was a pretty good inventory that yes. was kept very clearly. One of the gals that's down at our table downstairs, she's, she was the one, Bev Garcia, who tracked so much of this for us, and she's just really good at that kind of thing. And she was always, we were calling the groups and saying, where are you in the process? You're lesson six? Okay, great, how's it going? You know, and we're getting back feedback from our groups, and so that's when we would discover issues or things that need to be corrected. Um, hijackers. Uh, that's a person who comes in and wants to study Oprah's book instead of the, uh, Greg's book, you know. Uh, what, it, what, 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 you know, they've just, you know, and that happens. Somebody's got some wild idea and they come in and so you, you'll, you'll have to deal with that. Uh, ministry distractions, and I, I shared this a couple days, or yesterday I guess it was, but uh, we had a, a, somebody ask the question in a session like this, well, what did you have to give up in your church to make room for discipleship? Obviously, if, you know, the way we schedule our churches, we got the calendar's full. you got to take some things out if you're going to put this kind of stuff in. Well, initially, it's not a problem. You've got three or four groups. It's not a big issue. But as it gets bigger, it does. And, and somebody asked me in a session, what did you have to give up? And I thought about it. I said, we canceled Christmas. We canceled Christmas one year. In fact, it, I don't think it ever came back. <laughs> uh, what happened was we, we, we were a church that was built on the attraction model. We did these huge Christmas programs. We had the flying angels and all the stuff, you know. Uh, and, we, and we brought people from all over the county and other churches came to watch our show. And oh, it was this great thing. We get everybody to check the cards, you know. I made a decision, you know, whatever. And we never saw them again. Uh, but you know, we, we, we did this. And it was such a big deal. Every, it was an all-skate. Everybody in the church has to be a part of it. You're selling tickets. You're 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 in the drama. You're in the music. You're in the orchestra. You're some you're doing something in this thing. And we every ministry stepped aside to let come celebrate Christmas be our focus for October, November, and December. So in ja in July, I'm, I've got this great idea for next year's program, and I've got this I've got it all worked out. I call up the gal who's in charge of doing these programs for us, and I said, "Let's get together. I got some ideas I want to share with you." So we got together. I shared my idea of this elaborate new program that we're going to do next Christmas, and she kind of looked at me and she said, "Okay, I'll pray about it." 
I already prayed about it. What do you mean, pray about it? You know, uh, I'm the pastor. You know, but I said, oh, oh, okay, okay. Next week, she calls me on the phone. She said, let's get together for lunch. And I said, okay. She came in with her husband, support. Uh, she comes in and she says, I can't do it this year. She's on my staff, you know. I can't do it this year. Uh, what do you mean you can't do it this year? My discipleship group is going so strong right now, and I'd have to put that aside, and those ladies cannot afford for us to do that. And I think the rest of our church, discipleship is so important. If it's as important as we say it is, I don't think you should do it either, she said. <laughs> She's telling the pastor that he can, you know. And I was, I was so blown away by it. I did not know how to respond in that moment. I just choked my words back, and, and I just I walked out of there, and I'm, and I'm, I'm sweating, you know. I, I, but over the week, it took about a week, but this thing, God began to work on me, and, me, and she was absolutely right. We were so committed to doing the program that we'd done for so long, for so many years. I mean, other churches were calling in for tickets. They want, you know, they want their tickets. And we had to tell them that there's no program this year. We're not doing it because we're doing discipleship. Uh, yeah, you'll have to you'll have to put some things aside. You'll have to you'll have to reprioritize your agenda as a, as a church and your activity calendar. You'll have to make room for it eventually, not initially. But eventually, somebody's, they're going to come to you as a, if you're the senior pastor. And he's like, if we're serious about this, we're going to have to change some things. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from the Global Discipleship Initiative track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download their free PDF that summarizes how they teach people to do micro-discipleship groups, which are made of three or four people. Download it at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org slash global. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.